Welcome to The Scrum, the GBH News Politics Podcast. I'm Peter Katzis. I'm taking Adam Riley's seat today. We are going to unpack the recent special election in the 19th Suffolk District. Since time immemorial, Bob DeLeo, the man who defined the Massachusetts Democratic Center, represented Winthrop and Revere. But DeLeo will be replaced by Jeffrey Turco, who voted for Biden this time, but four years ago supported Donald Trump. Now, not to get ahead of ourselves, there is, after all, a final election to come in the district. Still, it's worth noting that Turco beat a progressive darling, Juan Yamio. Now, he was supported by Bernie Sanders and Ayanna Presley. That makes me wonder if there is a lesson to be learned in the, for the Boston mayor's race and even the 2022 governor's contest. To help us sort this out, we have Sue O'Connell of NBC10. She's a regular guest on Boston Public Radio. Sue, hello. Hey, Peter. Good to see you. Joining the Scrum for the first time is Liam Kerr of the Priorities for Progress Initiative. Liam, before we get going, why don't you tell us a bit about this particular project? Hey, great to be here, Peter. Uh, so a group of us you know, during that 2018 gubernatorial race where it started to become clear there would be a you know, nearly two to one landslide um, against the democratic vision for the state, started thinking more about the future, you know, the future vision, the future community and research that can put forth an achievable vision of politics and policy um, that can both win and make progress. And so this, you know, this race is one where we did you know, a little bit of polling and, and analysis and, you know, as you said, does hold some lessons for the future. Sue, you grew up in Revere and your family lives in Winthrop. Explain how a Trumpster beat a Bernie bro. <laughs> well, it's very simple if you actually still talk to people who live in Revere and live in Winthrop. Um, you know, the part it's part of Revere is in the district, but it's, I think, representative of uh, the rest of Revere. Although both communities uh, and towns and cities have become much more diverse uh, over the years, uh, you know, special elections stink. It was a lousy day. We haven't done anything to try and make voting easier for people. Uh, on a consistent basis. So uh, like any election that's a special election, uh, it's not necessarily uh, how many people vote, but who actually gets out to vote. So um, I hate special elections, and I hate that it's so complicated for people to vote. Having said that, Winthrop is a very interesting community. It's got a lot of folks who live there who work in the airline industry, uh, a lot of folks who are uh, have been there for generations. Uh, and it's not really that surprising uh, to see that they they didn't necessarily look for a progressive or a liberal uh, to replace the Leo, who you know was an on the ground constituent servant uh, for for many many decades. Um, you know our, our family's favorite DeLeo story is that my mom, who was a, a a political activist in Revere and then moved to Winthrop, she when she lived in Winthrop, she lived in senior housing and she used to just call DeLeo's campaign and ask them to send a party platter of cold cuts. And they would say, and we'll send a sign courtesy of the DeLeo campaign. And she would say, no, you can't. You just have to send the cold cut, which he would dutifully do. Uh, and then when my mom 
mom uh, passed away, he showed up at the uh, the wake five minutes before opening uh, to pay his respects because he didn't want my mother to think uh, from beyond the grave that he was using her 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 wake as a way to to politic and get haunted by her. So DeLeo uh, was really on the ground serving those communities, and you know I I, I think it's safe to say the Turco has a long-standing history there as well. So it should not be surprising for anyone who has spent time or know people in Revere and Winthrop that this happened, especially with it being a special election. Liam, now Sue just gave us a very rational on-the-ground explanation of why Turco won. But uh, to people who inhabit Twitter, can you explain just what went on? Yeah, and to your you know, point at the outset on Speaker DeLeo defining uh, the median uh, within the Democratic Party, you know, this district is effectively the median. As of a couple years ago, it was the 67th most Democratic out of the 160 state rep districts. Uh, it roughly falls, you know, when you take both Revere and Winthrop, in the middle of uh, where both Baker was in 2018 and where Biden was in 2020. And, you know, as opposed to being surprised by the outcome, I think we need to be a little concerned uh, about those who were surprised. And you know, we had done some polling analysis in the week leading up to the election, you know, showed, as Sue mentioned, you know, Turco having a longstanding presence in the community, um, probably more so than his, you know, who he'd want to you know, put on the Supreme Court uh, or something. Uh, it was out in the lead as a longstanding kind of local elected official. And he was at 20 percent uh, with Alicia Del Vento, another Winthrop uh, resident and former aide in the, the state house at 15 percent. Uh, and so for those who wanted to stop Turco, you know, there was a path forward to get behind someone from Winthrop, which had a majority of votes in the district, and they did not. You know, I think there's a nationalization to the race that, as you mentioned, Bernie, um, you know, is the Bernie endorsement the helpful thing? Is the nationalization of local politics a helpful thing to Democrats? And I think as we saw in 2018, probably not. Sue, so, um, you're an active member on Twitter, and obviously a member of the media. I have a membership, yep. I have a card and a membership and uh, <laughs> <laughs> is a card-carrying it, Twitter member. Do you have a Twitter tattoo? <laughs> it's on the way. On the way. You've got your feet firmly planted in the ground. You're fairly progressive. You know, you're really popular on Twitter. How can a discerning person make sense of politics if they get most of their info or at least most of their opinions via Twitter. Yeah, they can't and they shouldn't. And it should be a warning because, you know, I use Twitter as sort of a, a news service where I have uh, cultivated a, and curated a group of people I follow so I can see news that's happening or might happen or ideas that are happening, but I don't look at it as being representative of what's actually happening. And I was I was thinking this morning how funny it is that everyone who I know in Revere and Winthrop, uh, I don't think is on Twitter. They are on Facebook, and they are all thrilled today that uh, Turco won, right? But they weren't posting on Twitter, right? They weren't they weren't active in that that little ecosphere of the Twitter world. But if I only looked at Twitter, I would have thought that Turco was was never going to win. So I, I think it's just 
important to look at social media in general as a leg of a table rather than the only leg of a table, right? If if there was polling, if we were looking at the campaign donations in a regular world that isn't COVID-related, uh, if we were able to judge by yard signs, uh, all those things would give us a better picture of what's happening and who might be winning. But if you're just looking at Twitter, which is important. I mean, I think that we need to acknowledge that Senator Ed Markey's reelection was helped a lot by Twitter and helped a lot by the younger progressives who really were able to rally around him and push that forward. But at the same time, it's really just a tiny bit of the entire universe. And to just put too much um, attention and and weight on it uh, is misleading. Yeah, I know from my experience, I I have a relatively small focus group of two dozen people made up of family and friends. The common denominator, other than my knowing them all, is that they vote in every election. If there's an election for dog catcher, they vote. Um, For years, I've been asking them who they think is going to win whatever election is upcoming. They've never been wrong. Now, I don't ask them who they are voting for. I ask them who they think will win. Again, I repeat, they've never been wrong. I'm the only member of that group who's on Twitter. Um, And by the way, I consider Twitter a lifeline for me, Um, a lifeline for gathering facts and opinions. But Liam, let's bounce back over to you. What lessons do you think pundits can learn for the upcoming mayoral race from um, the special election that just took place in Revere and Winthrop? Yeah, so, you know, staying on the who is in your offline focus group and who is in your Twitter focus group, you know, there's a lot of great data out there from recent elections from the, you know, Biden primary win where his campaign literally said the country was in a different headspace uh, than Twitter was. And so we ignored that kind of gave the country its own headspace in a meditative sense. And they have the conviction to do that and stick with it. And I I spoke to a national democratic communications consultant who's had a bunch of success who said, you need the confidence to lose Twitter and win the election. And, you know, we see those uh, having inverse, you know, paths, but for pundits and the media in particular, who does find a lot of value on Twitter it can be easy to get in the echo chamber, and it often amplifies the traits of the media that also dovetail with upper education, upper socioeconomic status, high uh, attention to um, you know political events, bubble um, that can lead to some blind spots. Um, and I think you know whether it's you know the mayor's race next year or the gubernatorial election in two years, there's also the electoral aspect of what happened in this election, which is, you know, styles make fights. The structure creates uh, the incentives and the structure creates the opportunities for, um, you know, reality to diverge from a narrative. And I think in the, the mayoral race in particular, you know, it's a nine month preliminary election where someone's got to get to 20% or so. And in the gubernatorial election, you've got this you know, 18 month primary, right? And then you have a quick turnaround where you go from this nice kind of liberal bubble into um, into a general election. And so I think 
you know, keeping at front of mind the stages of the elections, um, the plurality nature. There's been a lot of ranked choice voting, the plurality nature and importance of the base um, vote for each candidate um, in elections. And then keeping the blinders up a little bit on Twitter for those, you know, 24 friends of Peter um, who are going to be voting in September 2021 in Boston. And, you know, probably are going to be thinking more about shoveling sidewalks than about the Green New Deal. Yeah. Sue, I'm asking you this less as a political person and more as a social observer. The, the crowded and still growing posse of people running for mayor of Boston is very social media savvy. How do candidates avoid deluding themselves when they're so wedded to Twitter? And by the way, these are all very smart candidates. It's, it's shaping up to be intellectually a very strong group of contestants. But how do they sort this out? Yeah, if I were advising a candidate, any any candidate actually, uh, about how to use social media, I would say that, uh, especially Twitter, there really should be only two things that you're doing on social media. One is having your uh, campaign's communication office send out official tweets, right? So whatever your policy idea is, whatever your response is, whatever the press release or news media release is that you would be sending out, repurpose it and make it a tweet and use your Twitter account to do that, right? And then the second thing I would say is use it as a personal branding, right? Use it to tell that story about yourself that is unique to your campaign that you want the voter to connect with and to expand on. So it's branding and campaign messaging. And then I would urge the candidate not to go on Twitter at all. (laughs) I would tell them just, you know, don't engage, uh, don't respond. Uh, and spend your time um, doing what you need to do, whether it's uh, finding a way to door knock, uh, uh, raising money, um, do the old traditional things that you need to do in order to actually get votes. I mean, I think if most campaigns spent more money and time on the get out the vote <laughs> efforts, um, they, would, they would win a lot more often than they would on a whole host of other ways that they, they spend their time. And I'd also a note about these big national endorsements, and I would actually say a note about any endorsement. If the endorsement of uh, a candidate or of an elected official or a, a big known celebrity politico doesn't come with help in fundraising or help with boots on the ground, it is meaningless, right? Because most voters aren't paying attention to who's being uh, endorsed by whom. But if you can get a Bernie Sanders uh, contingent to go out and door knock for you, or you can get, you know, more Healy's access to her fundraising, then that's another story. But, uh, you know, I'm always wincing, especially at these local races when they're highlighting their, um, and the mayor race, the mayoral race, the gubernatorial race are different. But, you know, on these local races, highlighting these endorsements is, it's really a waste of time, I think. Listeners, if you have a hammer and chisel available, carve into stone what Sue just said. <laughs> Liam, let's stick to Boston, but if you want to, you can morph into the governor's race. In Boston, How does a field of essentially progressive candidates reach out to the center because it's the center 
that's going to determine who the next mayor of Boston is. Boston is certainly to the left of the state and to the left of the 19th Suffolk district. But I think the, the, the difference between that Twitter crowd um, and the median voter uh, will be especially uh, important in the, in the, in the final election um, is still pretty wide. Um, so polling, statewide polling we did uh, in August 2020 of the Democratic primary electorate and we found about 13% of users identify as very progressive. And they were you know, nearly four times as likely as anyone else, even regular progressives, um, to use Twitter daily. Um, and that echo chamber, I think, also manifests itself in probably who the candidates will be seeing at events, um, at small hosted events. And so the Twitter distortion field, you know, in a more blue district, um, also does create an echo chamber more and more in what candidates are seeing, I think, on their stops along the way. And you know, there will be an opportunity for candidates to, you know, again, as Sue mentioned, go back to the data and look at the data with fresh eyes um, and also see that the progressive lane is now far more crowded than it has been in any other race. Um, and so while the electorate may be moved to the left of where prior fields were, um, you know, the field has moved maybe even more than the electorate uh, has in this coming year. And you know, it will be interesting you know, to see you know, where do the Flaherty at large, Michael Flaherty at large voters go. And it's a very good example. And, and who in essence becomes, you know, when you saw that transition from the wide opened one vote preliminary field in this nonpartisan election in 2013 into the final, it became a race between, you know, the kind of geographic east and west parts of uh, kind of white old Boston, um, trying to pick up the, you know, third, fifth, sixth and eighth candidates votes. And it will be interesting to see the field is not fully formed yet. But if there is a Flaherty-ish candidate, um, who does come in and pick up, even if they don't come in first or second, um, can play kind of the opposite role that was played in 2013. Um, and that'll be pretty interesting to see. Yeah, I'm going to repeat my prediction, which I made in the last podcast, that I would not be surprised if a viable white male candidate does not emerge. But that's just for the record. Um, right, but remember too, there's also a push, and former Senator Diane Wilkerson is 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 moving to try and get folks to, um, to 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 coalesce behind one candidate of color at some point, right? And I think to kind of go back to our conversation about Turco, uh, having a strategic eye on if you are in a community that wants to be represented uh, about how to corral the votes and give an indication of who to vote for, um, I, I think is essential um, to, to whoever is going to win the race. If there's a, you know, a Flaherty-like, or maybe Flaherty, who knows, Flaherty-like uh, candidate who's going to also bring a big voting block with them. Um, and listen, in terms of, of shaping the conversation and the message for uh, voters who might be less progressive, 
you know, the economic argument is is always one that um, resonates. And whether you're talking about the Green New Deal, where people might be looking at it as a very uh, lefty, progressive ideal, but if you're emphasizing, um, hey, how are we going to pay for evacuating uh, people who are living in Fort Point Channel in 10 or 15 years? Who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for these companies that are moving there if they're underwater all the time? Um, that's a message I think that can resonate with, uh, it, with take your progressive ideal and be able to translate it into an econo- economic argument that almost anyone can, can get behind. And so what, one, just to piggyback on one part of what you just said, the, the pragmatism at the ground level, especially in local elections, you know, there is a na- echo in the national trend of you know, the pro- you know, white progressives being to the left of what is now within the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. You know, the majority of the Democratic Party nationally is about 50% moderate or conservative. The majority of those voters are not white. If you look at the voter file, just to put a number on it, Boston in recent elections has been between 62% of the electorate white to 68% in lower turnout elections white. And, but a big chunk of those voters are those voters to the to the far left. Yeah, you know, it was interesting that prompts me to reach back a couple of months when GBH News commissioned a poll from Massing Polling. We were surprised to see, um, in general, but also among black voters, how strong um, support for the police was. At the same time, there was huge support for police reform. Um, And I'm using that term loosely and generally, but I I think we all know what it means. Cutting, at a minimum, cutting down on violence towards citizens. Um, We were all at GBH, myself included, somewhat taken aback. I would say that was one of the two big surprises in that poll. Um, And I'm not in any way attacking my colleagues in the media, but coverage of the police, reading what what you see in the major media outlets, their websites or listening online or reading their newspaper, you're not crazy if you came away with an opinion that, um, geez, the cops aren't very popular in black neighborhoods. Um, <laughs> you know, Peter, it's it's funny you say that because I've, I've been I've been talking about this. I live in Roxbury, and um, that's right. When Commissioner Bill Evans was the commissioner, uh, he was down at Marcella Park one day, and I was walking my dog, and I ran into him. And at least five neighbors who happened to be African American or black came out to yell at him to tell him what a great job he was doing and how much they 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 were thankful for the work that he was doing. Right, and you know, not long ago, a kid in front of my house, there was an incident. His girlfriend hit him and threw a phone at him and asked me if I would call the police for him, and I called. 911. Uh, he gave the na- his name over the 911. The detectives show up. The kid ended up being uh, uh, suspected of being in a gang, and they were giving him a hard time because they've been trying to talk to him for three weeks, and he kept avoiding him. But now here he was calling them for help. 
because his girlfriend had assaulted him. It turned out to be okay, which is why I'm laughing. But I mean, it's it's not a simple yes or no. People want uh, police protection. People want their neighborhoods to be safe. People don't want to have violence uh, at their front doors. And they also want police to act uh, equitably, fairly, with discretion and and um, not be uh, harming them. So it's not an either or. It's not a binary choice. Exactly. Liam, I'm going to give you the last question, and um, I'd like to flash forward to the 2022 gubernatorial race. Just sticking in the Democratic lane, because we don't know whether Baker's going to run again, but the, the Democratic field is... Um, shaping up. What are your thoughts on how a probably overwhelmingly progressive group of Democrats um, can successfully run, uh, let's just say, against Charlie Baker, because that makes your answer easier? Yeah. The mystery of Baker's popularity is one that the online left does seem to willfully ignore. And answering that question is one of the most important uh, things that Democrats can do moving forward in the state to understand how to win and you know eventually pass um, things that can actually achieve progress um, instead of just a hashtag that could get a lot of retweets. And you know I think we're we're already seeing some positive signs on that from you know as you, the field is not obviously fully formed, but you know Ben Downing, who's the only I think announced candidate, um, has actually been using Twitter in a in a way to like effectively get at some of Baker's weaknesses, you know, is he's like a two year long Twitter thread, I think titled focus on the record, looking at specific management things that Baker has not, you know, been up to par on. And it's that management that voters really want. We did polling after the 2018 primary where, you know, again, on this head in the sand thing, you know, Jeff Deal, who is Trump's campaign chairman, received more votes in 2018 running for Senate than the Democratic ticket for governor. And that was not a wake-up call. Mm. That has not changed kind of behavior or narrative online. And people have to wake up. And I think it is that focus on the record. Um, and, you know, don't compare him to Trump, you know, fo- focus on kind of the specific management pieces that, you know, our polling shows voters care about with governors in particular. Um, they actually place governor, uh, governor's management skills over values alignment. Um, and what our polling found is basically voters trust Democrats on values. They do not trust Democrats on results. And it's, you know, for us at Priorities for Progress is that gap between values and results that we'd like to help close um, and hopefully change the incentives for candidates so they can stay, you know, with that focus on the record message. Um, you know, Danielle Allen, who uh, is uh, exploring a run as well, she had a quote in uh, a piece she, she wrote in The Atlantic that said, um, you know, justice Democrats, quote, hinder governance by insisting on perfection as if that's an option. That's a reference, by the way, to Harvard professor Danielle Allen, who is contemplating entering the Democratic field. Well, listen, this seems like a good spot to end. I want to thank Sue O'Connell. I want to thank Liam Kerr. Don't worry, Adam Riley will be back next week. I'm Peter Kadzis of GBH News. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do it on, drum roll please, 
Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Kadzis, capital K-A-D-Z-I-S. And our producer is Zoe Matthews, and you can reach her at at Zoe S. Matthews. Sue and Liam, thanks again. Great talk. Folks, until next week.